Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Psych War Podcast. We're back on season number five, and I'm here with a very special guest and a local friend of mine, Josiah Haas. Josiah, say hello to everybody. What's up, everybody? This is Josiah. All right, before we get into today's podcast, I'm going to turn it over to Josiah to give him a second to introduce himself. If he wants to plug his Instagram handle or anything, he can do that. And then we'll come back and we'll dive into the topics we're going over today, everybody. Josiah, it's off to you. Yeah, uh, so I'm Josiah Haas. I'm a, uh, I'm a uh, graduate student at the University of Memphis. Um, I come from a very blue-collar background and everything. Um, I, went to, I went to high school with David, and uh, it's, uh, it's a really great opportunity just to get on here and kind of talk about uh, the current events and everything. There's a lot I'm fired up about. There's a lot of shit I want to talk about, and uh, I'm just really looking forward to talking some shit out. All right. That's good to hear. So without further, everybody, we're going to get past the intro, and there was something that me and Josiah were talking about before, we, before the podcast. And it was the working boot theory, and you, do you want to explain that? Yeah, um, so it, it's something that I definitely saw firsthand growing up, you know. Um, the basic concept is, um, suppose the minimum wage for um, a day's labor, or, or a week's labor, um, is $40, right? Okay. Um, and so you have two different pairs of boots, one that's $10, and one that's $50, well, a week's worth of labor is not going to be able to afford that $50 pair of boots. So naturally, the man working at a minimum wage job is going to buy the $10 pair of boots. Right. The only problem is in less than a week's time, there's going to be a hole in the bottom of his shoes. So that means each week he's going to have to buy a new pair of boots for the same $10. And while he is saving $40 on each purchase, over time, that $50 pair of boots that would have lasted a lot longer is going to cost him substantially more money. Um, and I think that this really kind of speaks to the fact that uh, in the current system, uh, where everything is based on a profit motive and everybody is expected to just uh, provide for themselves when it comes to necessity and uh, their tools and everything, uh, what actually happens is not a rags-to-riches story, but rags that continue as rags and riches yeah. that continue as riches, yeah. right? Um, and Trickle so down does not work, right? And so where I, I I can't remember exactly who said it, but there was a uh, there was a political scientist recently that I had seen a quote online from, and she said, you know, uh, a majority of the working class can't afford health care, so naturally they can't go to a back doctor when they have you know a a back ache or some kind of um, abnormality in their spine or something like that, but that will just exacerbate itself to the point where they are disabled mm-hmm. after a certain period of time. This actually leads me to something we were talking about earlier, and the only reason I'm going to bring it up is because we were talking about it earlier. And if you follow me on any social media, you see that I post the YouTube channel Secular Talk a lot, and that is Kyle Kalinske. But the, what t- how this ties in is, like Josiah just said, that your average worker can't afford to go to the doctor to get their back checked out. That's actually Kyle's story, and that's why Kyle chose to start becoming a political commentator and start his general journey into politics. Because the story goes, his father, who was the example of what we're talking about, the working poor man who worked 40-plus hours a week to provide for his family, 
and even then still could barely make ends meet. He wasn't a stupid man. He didn't make bad decisions. He did everything in his power to make sure that his family was good with what they had. Kyle's dad, for at least a couple years, had back problems. He just goes to the chiropractor because the chiropractor's cheaper. He feels better. He just feels better afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. simple, cheap, cheap fix. He keeps going to the chiropractor until about a year or two into the chiropractor, he can't take the pain anymore. He finally goes to the doctor. Stage four spinal cancer. Mm. Stage four spinal cancer, right at the base of his base of his spine, inoperable. That's insane. And yep. I, it was inoperable. He he died. Yeah. And, and that that was his story. But that is why Kyle chose to pursue the route that he chooses now. That is why Kyle believes in free Medicare, a livable minimum wage. Because as Josiah said, it, it's not rags to riches. Very rarely will you see a rags to riches story. Because one thing I'll say is that. No matter what people want to say, and I'm not discounting their own individual talent, nobody is self-made. Mm-mm. Nobody's self-made. There's no such thing as somebody that did it all by themselves. If they did, the only thing I can say about that person is they are very manipulative. Don't get me wrong, everybody's manipulative to an extent because that's what we do to survive. But to do it literally alone, that means they had to take advantage of every situation they got put in front of instead of people helping them and them accepting the help. And that's the difference. That's the literal difference between rags to rags and riches to riches. The rich stay rich. As I said when Josiah was talking, trickle-down epi- e- economics don't work. The poor man takes the cheap fix, and where does that leave him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, exactly. I mean, I think I could speak to this personally as well. Uh, uh, I think that I have kind of a similar experience, you know, just watching my own dad's life. So the whole reason we moved up to this area from Louisiana was because my dad had to have back surgery. Mm. Um, because he worked blue collar labor for such a long period of time, it took it, a toll it, on him. Yeah, it took a toll on him to the point where his uh, his his back basically gave out. He couldn't even pick up a water bottle at one point uh, because of how weak his back was. Um, and so we move up to Memphis and everything. And uh, he finally he, he goes. I'm sorry, I'm skipping a whole part of it. But he goes <laughs> he goes back to college. He gets a degree and everything. He's like, you know, I, I have all this medical debt, uh, and I also now have this student loan debt. But luckily, with this degree, I'm going to get a good middle-income job, right? Mm-hmm. And so we get up here, and he does. He has he has a good middle-income job. He's working for a big corporation and everything. And then wouldn't you know it, like corporations do, like big money does, they fire him because mm. there is someone cheaper to do the same amount of labor as him. Ah, they outsourced. It's a, yeah, it's a younger guy who yeah. didn't have a family, so they could give him a yep. much smaller salary. And so there my dad is with a nearly broken back. While I'm in seventh grade, we have a house note. We have all this debt and everything. We're, we're just trying to make it in the American dream, and we get absolutely butt-fucked by... Corporate America, right? Something completely outside of your control. Right. But here's here's the thing. Here's, here's what I want to show, though. In a court of law or whatever, they would make the case that my dad did this wrong or this wrong or this wrong. And that's yeah. what warranted him being fired. Yet we have a president who has all these counts against him. or Not even a president. It doesn't even have to be a Republican thing. Let's talk about Joe Biden and the malfeasance he has in Ukraine. Where's Hunter? Yeah, and here we yeah, and here we are. (laughs) Both of them are competing for the highest role in the land as president. 
And yet they both have known records of malfeasance. Yet my dad, because he's in the working class, yep. is always forced to go back down. See, because this the best way I could put it, I can't remember who I heard the quote from, but it's a really good quote about how it works with the rich. And it's just like, murder for the poor is murder. Murder for the rich is why you did it. Exactly. That's such a good point. Why, why'd you do it? It's not, It's not. oh, you're a murderer instantly when they see you murder somebody. It's, oh, why'd you, why'd you kill them? Right, okay. So so in every instance where there has been uh, police brutality or, or a black youth killed by the police, they will always bring up their criminal record. Yep. Oh, well, this kid was smoking weed. This kid, you know, uh, even worse, this kid, you know, he was selling narcotics. He was, yep. He had pills in the car. But you know what? Let's not get started on the Chads and Rebecca's out in suburbia doing the self-same thing. Bro, and what I, do they get? They get mental help. They get all these uh, programs and everything. They have all these risk management systems that surround them. Whereas a black youth in today's society, they get the death penalty right away. All right, so I have two things. One, I'm going to comment on what you were talking about, how like the bads and... Bads and the Checkies. <laughs> the uh, Chads and the Beckies. And then I'm going to comment on like the severity of the punishment. So, with the uh, Chads and the Beckies, I have a similar experience at one point. Because I rode with a friend somewhere. And that friend met somebody. We met them outside of a grocery store. And while one of our friends goes in to use the ATM, we sit outside and, you know, we're just waiting for him to come outside. And the guy that rode there with him is sitting across from his car. Big, like, 2019 F-150 truck. Like, four, like double cab, red, diesel engine, loud. It's turned on. His music's all the way up. He's He was bumping Migos' t-shirt. Oh my and don't get me wrong, that's a really good song. But he's just bumping it. And this is in the middle of Mississippi in a grocery store parking lot. <laughs> In the middle of South Haven, so for those of you who don't live there, it's the it's the burbs, it's it's, it's these suburbs of right. what we can call our area. So I'm just sitting there in my car, sitting there thinking to myself that, all right, he's bumping a lot, he's bumping loud music, his car is super loud, but I've seen people do that, and nothing happens to him. He proceeds to lean out the window and goes, "Yo, bro, do you want to hit my blunt? I'm rolling up." And I look over at his car, and he's just on his dashboard. We Dang. on his dashboard <laughs> rolling a blunt, bro. And oh I, my God. It, I'm just sitting there like, no, what, no, I don't want to hit your blunt, bro. Do you do you not know where we are? There's a police station a block away. Right, right. He had no fear, no fear whatsoever. It's almost like it didn't click in his mind that someone might see me and report it, or that someone might see me and call the police. Mm -hmm. That that wasn't in his mind remotely. Right. And then, moving on to my second point about the harsh punishments. Honestly, I think that stems from the war, like, not only the war on drugs, but American racism in general. Because if people, if you've heard my podcast before, you may have heard me talk about the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. And I talk about Harry J. Anslinger. Mm -hmm. And one crucial thing that Harry J. Anslinger did, that I honestly believe he kind of set the precedence for it, is how the government treats black, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just say drug users. Black drug users, because that man literally, it's exactly what you said. The, 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 uh, it was a jazz singer named Billie Holiday. Mm -hmm. What Anslinger did was relentlessly and demonically pursue that woman. 
Mm. To the point to where she was on her deathbed in the hospital telling her friend that do not leave because they are going to come and kill me. Oh, my God. That, that That's how deep this man had it in for him. Because, one, he was a racist. Mm-hmm. Harry J. Anslinger was the biggest racist. He ran countless articles and stuff disc- like discrediting black people and Mexicans. Because he wanted, he wanted marijuana to be the drug that we use, and that's why they criminalized it. Mm-hmm. On top of that they got rid of alcohol prohibition, so they need something else to go after. But... In the same note that he demonized and attacked Billie Holiday and like busted up her, like to the extent, like this is the extent I can say what he's. This, this is literally what he said about black jazz, like jazz players. He literally said that marijuana gave them a inhuman advantage when it came to playing music oh because God. no, no human being could play music that well that fast. <laughs> it that, that that was all I needed to know on Harry Dance. Like I was like, wow, bro. So we got mystical. Powers this before you acknowledge a black man is just really good at music. Yeah, but yeah. on top of that, you do you know the? Uh, did you watch the original Wizard of Oz? Yes. That actor, Dorothy, heroin addiction. Really? Yes, she had a heroin addiction. Guess who she had to run in with? Who? Harry J. Anslinger. Damn. And guess what Mr. Anslinger said? What? She doesn't have a problem. Send her away on a vacation. Exact words. Exact words to this day, even from like the the early nineties. <clears> I mean, nineteen hundreds. <throat> Those are his exact words. During the exact same time frame, he was demonizing Billie Holiday and putting that woman on her deathbed. Mm-hmm. In the exact same time, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz, oh, you don't have a heroin problem. What are you talking about, nice little girl? Go, 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 go take a nice vacation. Right. No, I mean, that's, that's such a good point. Um, what I think that we're really, what we're really coming down to here is it's, it's the war on drugs, let's not be fooled, is not a war on drugs, it's but it's a war on non whiteness. Yeah. You know, and, and here's the thing you can still, you can still be grouped into a non white category, even as a white person. That's, that's where the term white trash comes from, right? Okay, wait, I want to allude to that. Not to cut you off. No, yeah, no problem, no problem. One thing I learned, because I grew up in a, I would say we were blue collar, but my family owned land. Mm-hmm. Like, we've always had a farm, even since I grew up. I grew up on a farm. Right. So, it's not so much as that we had wealth, it's that they always stressed to us that the land was our wealth. That what you put into the land, you get back out of it. So, the mindset I always got instilled with as a kid was... Whatever you put in, that's what you get back out. Mm-hmm. And in this situation, it's kind of like I'm trying to like I'm trying to like narrow it down. What was the punch you made before I cut you off? Oh, I would I would just say like it's a war on non-whiteness. Okay, yeah, that that my bad. Yeah. Okay, so one thing I learned from my grandparents mm-hmm. and older black people growing up is that there were different classifications for white people because mm-hmm. I know most of the time if you grew up in the south you heard this a lot and it's people saying oh they call white people crackers because they crack the whip mm-hmm. alright that's not why alright the official classification is how this goes down if you're a redneck that means you're you're typically probably one of the ones that sat there with the gun and guarded people in the fields you were mm-hmm. out there in the fields working just as much as black people however you were in a position higher than them mm-hmm. crackers Crackers are the actual slave master because it is kind of like narrative to when they say cracking the whip. But who do you think was cracking the whip? 
it wasn't just anybody. They didn't just, they didn't just give a stable boy the, the power to like hit a slave. Right. Because slaves were still property. Slaves still generated value. Mm-hmm. What they called poor white people who were no better than black people by classification of the times, peckerwoods. Hmm. A peckerwood was literally the equivalent of a black slave. Someone that worked in the fields, someone that was not educated, someone that was normal. Guess who the main person that was, I guess you could say early, I guess, reconstruction and then like early pre like post reconstruction black people's enemy, Peckerwoods. Mm-hmm. It, it was the people on the same level as them. The people that were just as poor as them, the people that had no other classification aside from them other than the fact that they were white. Right. But they weren't white enough to be white with they weren't white enough to be with the country club whites. Mm-hmm. They weren't white enough to be with the suburban whites. Right. They they still got cl- they still got cast out. And one thing I noticed is that most of the people that are those people are descendants of immigrants. They're descendants of like the original Europeans, the original Scottish, the original Irish. But that alludes to a different point because the people that started the KKK were Irish and Scottish descendants. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's yeah, that, but... There is so much to unpack there, and there's so much yeah. good literature that, that's around this. Uh, recently, in grad school, we read this one, this one uh, article by Sylvia Winter. Okay. Where she she argues for the complete revalorization of humankind, um, and it, and ultimately what it comes down to is first removing uh, removing the European white man as being the uh, the basic or or just kind of like the the standard, the, the standard yeah. of what we what we mean when we say mankind. Yeah, and then I also to remove the male part of it too. But that's that's a whole nother subject right yeah, there. Yeah, that's that's. Um, <laughs> but it, fun. But you know, you really you really get down to it, and, and it really does come down to this conceptualization of whiteness. You know, um, and and the and so. I want I want to kind of address the whole point with the peckerhead. I mean peckerwoods. <laughs> peckerheads. <laughs> Pe- peckerwoods, right? Um, the reason why I think that they would have so much resentment uh, following the abolition of slavery mm-hmm. and following the emancipa- emancipation of um, African American peoples um, is because I feel as though they felt unseen in a way. At the time, okay, and and let's not be confused. Even now, the poor and working class white people that support Trump, the only reason they do that is because they feel unseen. Yeah, and so, true. when there is anything to push a white supremacist narrative, whether explicitly or implicitly, they don't even realize it. But the whole reason why they become such aggressive participants in that ideology is because subconsciously they're holding on to this last thing that they think makes them matter, and that's whiteness. Um, yeah. My whiteness is the reason that I'm mad. I'm being attacked. And, th- and that's why white people that live in the same hoods, same trailer park, same whatever, as black people, as Hispanic people, as poor Asian people for that matter, that are still so racist is because they subconsciously, subconsciously, they realize that there is a system of white supremacy and there are certain privileges that are engendered to people that they're not that, Yeah, that they have mm. just for having white skin. They know they can be pulled over by the cop and they are still given somewhat of a benefit of a doubt, right? And so anything to try to dismantle that 
completely undermines their entire purpose in that life. That's true. In, like, in their subconscious. And that's why they're so willing and, and excited to hold on to these white nationalist ideologies or these racist ideologies is because that's all they feel that they have. See, uh, do you do you watch Joe Rogan's podcast? Not, not a whole bunch. Okay. Not. He did this episode with this... I'm not, I don't know whether to call him a civil rights activist or not, but I'll address him by what he would address himself by. He's a blues musician. Mm-hmm. His name is Daryl Davis. And what Daryl Davis came on the like Joe Rogan show and explained was that he is not he doesn't consider himself directly responsible, but once you hear his words, he is. He, in my words, is directly responsible for over twenty members of the Ku Klux Klan turning in their robe. Oh, I have heard of this guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. as he explains it in it, he had a conversation with a guy. And the way he met the guy was that he was in a bar, he was playing jazz. And he said afterwards, the guy literally walked up, walked up while he was just turning around the bar and literally put his hand on his shoulder and, and told him, I've never met a black man that can play music like Jerry Lee Lewis. And he said what he explained to him was that, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. I know plenty of black people that can play just as well as him. I'm friends with Jerry Lee Lewis. Mm-hmm. And we're all from the same school where we learned this. And the white guy was like in disbelief. He literally was like, there's, there's no way. Blank, 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 blank. There's no way. Fast forward. He's going on a ride with this guy, and he's talking to this guy, and the guy explains to him that he says, you see, Daryl, you have a gene in your body that is latent that makes you aggressive, Mm -hmm. that makes you act out, that makes you commit crime, and et cetera, et cetera. And Daryl goes, well, that doesn't make any sense. I've, I've, I've never committed a crime. I've never been, I've never been in trouble with the law. I've never done anything. Mm -hmm. And he goes, that's because your gene, your latent gene hasn't activated yet. So what Daryl Davis does is he flips it on him. He goes, all right, can you name four black serial killers for me? Exactly. Then the guy goes, because when they were talking about it, it was just prior in like the 90s or 80s, so there were, there were even less, because I think there's been like one or two since then. But he, he came up short and he says, you have the latent gene for serial killers in your, in, in your body. And he's like, well, that doesn't make any sense. He was like, how do you know I'm a serial killer and I haven't killed anyone yet? And he was like, do you see what you just said? And he said that you could literally see the gears turning in his head. Like, he sat there for about three minutes just... You could see the gears turning in his head. And he said that he didn't talk anymore on it. But the next day, he called him and he told him, he said, all right, I got to quit. He was like, I've, I've realized through what you said and I've thought about it that there's no way that I can think this. And still think the same thing, mm-hmm. and that, that that's li- that's literally like moving in on what you said is that there'll be no differences between them. There'll be no differences, but they're still holding on to this. It's like this image. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I, I I'll give a similar comparison in saying this. Okay, like yes, in twenty twenty, we are not black people are not as oppressed as they once were. We are oppressed in different ways. People can debate on the severeness of that. I'm not here to debate on that. I'm just saying we're depressed. We're oppressed in different ways, as are all poor people, as are people of different class and different functions. But what I will say is that there are people who, for for lack of anything else in the conversation, will just bring up slavery and will just bring up racism. Like, that's why they can't do something. It's as in... It's the same way as that, like if you were to like talk to like somebody that was like white supremacist or right wing, you would go, 
what's the problem? And he's just, they're giving all our jobs away to these damn Mexicans. Right. Yeah. No, it, it's the, uh, what it is, and let, let's call it for what it is, is a modern mythology. Right. And, yeah, and that's, something that, that's the perfect way to put it, a mythology. Right, yeah. Um, it is a story that is created to explain a current phenomenon that you're seeing. Yeah. Right? So so uh, one of the most pertinent issues right now, especially after the uh, all all the shootings uh, of black men and women you know that happens general, a lot. Exactly. Um, it all stems from this mythology that, like you mentioned earlier, um, a lot of white people or just... Americans in general subscribe to, and that is that black men are more aggressive or Dude, prone to it. I, I will but, say this again, not to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I will say this in one hundred percent person is that I personally, I know, like once I got dreads, I think people do perceive me as like more thuggish. But I think that's just because of the culture associated with dreads right now. But prior to that, like you know, I was more heavy set. I had shorter mm-hmm. hair. Even then, when I like I don't think I look threatening. Like don't get me wrong, I was big, no. <laughs> but I don't think I look threatening. I, nah, I look like were... I look like a nerd, bro. Nah, yeah, bro, you, you look like a straight up I nerd. I ain't had lie. countless interactions just walking into the store, walking into Walmart, walking down the street where the white lady would like, like, cause I walk fast. Cause if you've been a kid in high school, and not only that, if you're like a kid that doesn't talk to anyone, mm-hmm. you're literally circumventing the. The school, you're going all around the school. You're just dodging people in the hallways, clinging right. to the sidelines. Right. So you get there fast. So that's how I walk. I move fast. So I'll, I'll move past this old white lady super fast. And she'll literally just, like, flinch yeah. at me, grab her purse. And I'm just standing there. Like, in my mind, the first part of me thinks to myself, like, why would you ever think that I would do this to you? Like, I'm not, I'm not this type of person, lady. Right. And then the other part of me thinks, like, how dare you? How dare you just see me just walking normally and think I'm here to threaten you? And mm-hmm. then similar situations, I'll be walking down the street. I might be on a walk. I might be just walking to clear my head. I could be walking to exercise or running or something. Mm-hmm. Without fail, I'd say about 70% of the time, that white lady switches the street side. Yep. No, she does yep. not run past me. She does not walk past me. She, the moment she sees me, and there's any moment of like me noticing her, she switches sides. You know, it's so culturally entangled, with a, to use a Jada Pinkett Smith term, so culturally entangled <laughs> Boy. Uh, in our society to to fear black skin, right? And so the only way I've able, so I want to I want to speak on a couple things. First, the only way that we can ever overcome this fear of black skin or the fear of really anything is to be critical of these things that we just automatically believe and yeah. we've never really thought about believing, right? Yeah. So so my sister, I was on the phone with her the other day and she was asking me, she said, you know, well, what are ways in which I could, you know, I could practice not not be like not being a racist. You know, like what are ways in which I can see somebody that you know that like a black man that is walking down the street and not automatically get uptight and everything like how do i talk myself down i said well here's the way you do it ask yourself am i planning on hurting robbing or kidnapping this person approaching me and she's like well obviously no you know and i was like okay then ask yourself why would they have a reason to do that to me 
Because they're a human just as you are. And she's like, yeah, you're correct. And I said, but here's the thing. If you can answer in the affirmative and you could say, well, they could for this reason, ask yourself then, why are we allowing this person to be in that p- position? So here, here's an example. You say, do I have a reason to rob this person that's walking, uh, approaching me or whatever? Okay. No, I don't have a reason. Well, do they have a reason to rob me? Well... They look like they might be poor. They look like they might be houseless. They look like they could use some money, and I might look like I have that money. So then let's break this down. Why does it look like they don't have money? Well, one answer could be it's this uh, it is this heuristic device that we've created to associate black skin with poverty. Which that in itself needs to be evaluated. I'll even stretch and say darker skin in general. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just non-whiteness. Yeah. Um, okay, but that not be, that might not be it. Well, maybe it's the clothes that they're wearing or something. Okay, why have we associated those clothes with poverty? And it, it's just this kind. There was a game that we played on the bus in high school when I went to Lake Cormorant actually, um, and and it was such a it was such a like endless spiral right but i felt that we got to uh like a deeper truth every time we played it okay and what it would start out with is you would ask a a, a broad question or whatever and then the the other person we're playing with just kept on saying why until you couldn't answer anymore i remember that game. you remember that game yeah and uh and, and the thing is if you will go in it, it really hit me deep in seventh grade when it, when i like stumbled upon this game. I think Austin Bagley or something like that is the one that showed it to me, which I haven't seen that man as a seventh grade. If he's <laughs> listening, what's up, dude? Hit me up. But anyways, uh, I, I've, so many times in life I went into that, you know, and I've been like, well, this is what I believe. Why? And then I'll try to answer it as best I can. I'm like, well, why? And you keep doing that. Yep. And, and if you do that in the situation I just explained, you know, you say, so why is blackness tied to poverty? Is there something there? Are black people uh, ostracized from attaining equity? Which there's a whole case for that. Yes. And that's how you come to these realizations that otherwise I would have just said blackness, dangerous, blackness, poverty. Right. I haven't thought about that in a while. Like how the Y game would actually work out nowadays. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, I feel like most people would just get mad. (laughs) Right, because so many people don't feel as though they need to do that, when in reality they do. And and so that's on the other point I want to get to, okay. right? So, um, we, we've talked about whiteness, or, 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 uh, or at least working class whiteness in response to dismantling um, our white supremacist attitudes of the world, in yeah. which we question any non-whiteness, right? Um, but here's the thing. We have to also be honest with ourselves when it comes to our history, too. The Pekka Woods need to be honest. In the present, right now, there are boys in Mississippi that are flying rebel flags and everything, oh, saying, yeah. it's my heritage. It's and they're not. saying that they're proud of it. And, and here's the thing. Yeah, there's all this conjecture and everything about the history of the rebel flag, and that's all true. But let's not even go on that argument. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the fact that your relative that fought in the Civil War 
didn't choose to be there. Yes, and so arguably, too. your entire family was put at a risk of never existing because he was conscripted and forced into a war. He had no dog in the fight. They definitely conscripted soldiers. That's what a lot of people like to forget about the South is they like... They, they, yeah, they, they were trying to bolster their numbers, literally. They drafted poor, young, white men to go and fight in a war they had no part in, and they told them it's all about states' rights, and it's all about their national yeah. identity. That That's uh, the... That, it's a... Uh, fuck. Sisters, that's sisters of the Dixie rhetoric. Yeah, Sisters of the Confederacy. Yeah, there it is. Daughters, of the, of, daughters of the Confederacy. Yeah, Daughters yeah. of the Confederate rhetoric. That's what Which, it is. Which, by the way, <laughs> in college... has a little ring to it. Daughters yeah. of the Confederate rhetoric. Yeah, in, in, in Collierville... <laughs> Yo, that's a bar. In Collierville, right now, they still got a monument to that. And there's, really? The, yeah, there is activity trying to get that thing taken down. Um, if y'all want any more information on some stuff going on with that, let me know. Definitely look into that. So, uh, but yeah, back on to it, you know. These are the mythologies that we've got to be critically evaluating. Because once we once we realize that we were just as tied up in this stuff and we were just as enslaved to this concept yep. of whiteness as people that were literally in chattel slavery, then we can start to have some real solidarity with people that are now still struggling with the same issues that we decided we would just be complicit in. Because once again, like you said... Like when we discuss the term the Peckerwoods, what did I say Peckerwoods were? They were the people that were no different. They were no different than black people. They lived in the same areas. They lived, don't get me wrong, I think they still like separated. I was because of the right. tensions. Right. But it wasn't separation as in like, I have to drive 10 miles to get to the white people. It's separation as in like, the white people live on this side of the neighborhood. I live on this side of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And that's just how it is. It was literally them, and most of the people that would end up being KKK members would be Peckerwoods. Although I will say two two things. I'll say one: if you do your research, I'm not I'm not going to leave you with the typical. If you do your research, I'm going to also tell you a lot of presidents were in the KKK. Yeah, Jimmy Carter was in the <laughs> KKK. I think Ford Ford was in the KKK, and I think. Nixon had some weird mixins with them, but Nixon has a whole host of shit yeah, that he's. Nixon's. Who cares? Nixon. Nixon, you fucked up, bro. <laughs> yeah, for real. You really fucked up your presidency. I don't think Reagan had any connections to him, but that's Reagan. Now that's surprising. Yeah, Reagan. Reagan, Reagan had. Let's be honest. Reagan was just as bad as Nixon, but he could talk his way out of it. That's one thing I'm starting to like. Okay. Wait, okay. Iran Contra should have ended that man's fucking okay. career. But before I go off on Reagan, I'm going to finish my second point. And that's just saying what, what Josiah was talking about earlier is that people, people see, when they see someone walking down the sidewalk, like he said in that situation, they assume, they assume based on their clothes, they assume based on their skin color, they assume based on their appearance. Now, I will say, having grown up in lower income areas or areas that I will say have like higher crime rates, one thing I will say is that you do have to take those consideration, but it's not based on skin color. I know plenty of black people that'll tell you they've walked down the sidewalk before and seen somebody that's also black and just been like, "Ah, oh, nah, bros on something, some something weird," and that's not in the sense of because he's black. Because obviously, like if you've heard the argument of like black on black crime. If you've heard me say it before, black on black crime doesn't exist. That is 
literally crime going down in their community, like all other communities. People literally mm-hmm. commit crime against the people mainly that they know, mm-hmm. that they know they can get away with, that they know they had the easiest chance against. Poverty leads people to do just random fucking incidents. Poverty leads people to go, this random person walking down the street looks like they have money, and I need money. Mm-hmm. That's one thing people don't take into consideration. And back to what I was saying about just living in an impoverished area, there are like there's certain sets of rules that go to it because everyone knows you're a member of the community. It's a community. It's a small knit community most of the time. Only a couple thousand, maybe a couple hundred people in that one area. But how it usually goes down is like most people know other people's business. Right. When you're the neighbor that walks outside and the guy across the street goes, "How you doing, Mister Carter?" And, you know, he's just some young black kid. He could have said it in a mocking tone. Maybe maybe he said it in a tone that was just like, oh, here comes Mr. Carter. And you look up and see him and he goes, how you doing, Mr. Carter? And you just look at him and you don't say anything and you get in your car. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Despite your skin color, whether you're black or white, that neighbor is going to see you do that and go, oh, fuck that guy. Right. And you know what he's going to say the next time he sees a strange car parked outside your house and people he knows don't live there going in? Not my business. Right. That has nothing to do with skin color. That has everything to do with community. That has everything to do you with being how you, an asshole. <laughs> you being an asshole. How you treat people in your respective <laughs> communities. And I, I, I'll go, uh, go ahead. Before I get on my like Reagan spill, because boy, Reagan, <laughs> there, there are things I do want to say just on that subject of like, living in a more, I guess, dangerous environment, and that these environments are not unique to the hood. They're not unique to black people. They're unique to where anywhere there's poverty. You go to fucking Brazil. Go to that giant stadium they built right in the capital. It's a nice stadium, full of millions of people, super nice stadium, full of tourists. You go a mile outside that stadium, slum. You know, know what's going to happen to you in that slum? You can get mugged. Yeah. You get stabbed. You can get robbed. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie. Look around. That's not an area you should be in if you don't think that you're going to get robbed. Right. Like, there are certain things that go into play. And the, the, the best way I can put this is think about it in this way. You buy a new TV. You put that box out on the side of the street. All right, for people that live in suburbia and live in nicer areas, y'all don't think anything of that. For me that grew up in, like, lower-income areas, or I even grew up in a middle-income neighborhood after, like, 16. And I'll still say that there's one rule you follow. Don't leave your boxes outside. Do you want to know why? There's one thing that sends a message of. I just got a brand-new TV. Yeah. Hey, hey, person that doesn't live here that doesn't know me, I just got a brand-new 68-inch fucking TV. Right. Now you know that I can at least afford a 68-inch TV. Mm-hmm. So maybe the person that's hurting is going to see that. They're going to see that box and be like, okay, these people got money. And then they're going to choose you. Right. Like, people like to think that crime is just somebody chooses a random target, whoever is there for their best opportunity. And I will admit a lot of time it is take the, take advantage of what's there. Take advantage of what's in the present. But a lot of the time, most crimes, most murders, sadly most rapes, most anything where it is violence against another human, it is coming from somebody that either knows you, knows something about you, or has studied you. Right. No. Th- yeah. th- there's m- Random crime is very, very rare. It just does not happen. If it does happen, it's very correlatable to literal poverty statistics. You know what that reminds me of is all this stuff going on around uh, about the, uh, the whole uh, pedophilia ring. 
in everything. Everybody thinks that it's like uh, it's like these like Epstein and them. They have folks running into Walmart, yeah. stealing these kids that strayed away from the mama. But that's not the case. Most uh, most sex trafficking is done by people that they know. Yep. Done by family and people that they trust. You want to know why? Because it's easy to come over for a lie for a missing kid when you were the one that was supposed to be watching them. Mm-hmm. You're the culprit that's least to be suspected. You're the one that knows where the kid is. You know their schedules. You know what they do. It's, it's, it's what sick, what I'm it's, trying to say is it's not really a conspiracy like we think it. It is. It's, cons- it's kind of there, but people aren't pinpointing it. Basically, ultimate. Th- this is what I'm going to say. Okay. Uh, this entire Epstein, um, Hollywood, Washington D.C. pedophilia ring and everything that wasn't done by them going and like finding these random ass kids or whatever nope. that they thought was cute and then stealing them what the, you know the way that they got these kids to do like malfeasance or whatever grooming them grooming them yep. with what with uh with occupational opportunities with financial opportunities yep. we are fooling ourselves if we think that it's these um, these poor people trying to spin a dollar off of some blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid, which, let's, I mean, that's going back to the concept of whiteness right there. Uh, we, we are wasting our time if we really think that it's some man-on-fire type bullshit, when in reality it's these folks in the upper echelons of society that are doing all this shit Yep. with what? With their purchasing power, yeah, with their power and in, in networking and everything else, that's the reason you why you have to have power to do something like that, right? That's the reason why so many Hollywood people are tied up in it. I promise you, they didn't get originally involved because they wanted to do some nasty stuff, they got involved because they were like, I bet you this is the way it went down. Did you hear what happened with uh Kevin Spacey? Mm hmm. So, like, like in the Kevin Spacey situation. What happened in Hollywood when they revealed that is something that's kind of odd. Like fifty percent of Hollywood was really just like, yeah, we knew, we knew, we knew Kevin had young dudes that performed stuff for him. That's just the way it is. And the other fifty percent was like, oh my god, I can't believe he did that to those people. But in reality, in the business, that's just the way it works. There are young, impressionable people that want to make it, and there are people in positions of power that will take advantage. It goes, hey kid, want to be a star? Mm-hmm. Is that easy? And once you're roped into it, you can't do anything. When you show up, when you if you join a group, let's say you join, I, let's say you join a football team, and after the game you go, oh, good game, guys, and then you notice one of your teammates walk up and slip the ref like a hundred bucks, right. and you just stop and go, wait, so do we actually win? Is like, nah, bro, it's just for the people to enjoy. We we win all the time anyway. He rigs the game. You got two choices there. You leave because you're like, this isn't what I want to do. I don't like this. Or you get in and shut up. Yeah. Uh, the, man, I don't even know the name of the paper or anything, but I just heard about this paper today from um, one of the professors at the university. Her husband just wrote this paper on... Um, on, on chain of like chains of abuse or whatever. And so basically the concept of this is you're always going to have these two parties in an abusive relationship. Okay. You're going to have the abuser and the abused, right? But there's also a third party. And it's the people who are too afraid to challenge the abuser yep. because they don't want to also be abused 
or that also don't want to put off the image that they are also abusing the abuse, yeah. right? And so what do they do? They choose to be neutral. And, uh, and ultimately, this is, the, this is the issue that we're dealing with in the United States, especially in the case of Black Lives Matter. You have all these people who are afraid that they're going to be on the wrong side of things if they choose a side. That's almost like uh, the Gestapo, like Hitler and the Gestapo. Mm-hmm. Like there were so many people that were just like, I was just doing my job. You weren't just doing your job. You sat back and watched. Exactly. You watched the atrocities take place and you used the excuse of, it was just my job. It's just it's just how it was. It's just what was going down. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the entire police force. You know, if you have 1,300 bad cops, if you have 1,300 good cops, and then you have 12 bad cops, if the 1,300 don't say shit about the 12, you have 1,312 bad yep. cops. That's just the way it goes. Yep. You become complicit in abuse and oppression when you don't stand up to it. Yep. And, uh, and that's 100% true. Mm-hmm. It's almost saying, it's almost in a sense to say like, for, for those of you out there that might be in this situation, you can take it as you're guilty. You can also take it as this is your moment. You might want to take the realization to speak up on some like maljustice taking place. It also might be your moment to look at things going on and realize who in your life might be the one standing back. But there... There's also this thing, I think this, this is one of the uh, theories that people come up with as to why like an anarchical society won't work. Mm-hmm. And is it was made off a case, I believe, from early New York, and is that there was a woman being like raped and beaten in the street. And she was screaming help. Yes. Yeah, and everyone that. out, everyone that was listening from those like 10-story windows, just they were just like, either somebody else is going to handle it or the police will obviously come help this woman screaming. And she no died. one came. She died. She yeah. died. No one came. Every single person that heard that and made the decision right then and there that it either wasn't their problem or that the police would eventually show up, you all are complicit in that murder. Mm-hmm. All of you let that happen. That is the way that works. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I do think that there's a certain extent. There's there's an extent of knowing. Like, if you if you don't know that you're complicit in something, like let's let, let's say you find out that someone asks you a question. They're like, bro, does Bob do blank, blank, blank? And you're just like, well, now that I think about it, Bob does do that. And then you tune into their conversation. They were basically just ripping on Bob to tear him down. And you're just like, whoa, 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 I did not. I wasn't trying to say that he's just like a piece of shit. I was just saying like, he doesn't put the fucking laundry back, bro. It's that simple. Yeah. It's literally that simple. Like your complicity right there. You didn't think about it. You just went, oh, yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. And guess guess what that turned into? That piled onto the larger issue that you weren't you either didn't know about or ignoring. So in that situation, I can give people the benefit of the doubt in saying that okay, you once you're educated on the matter, that is when you need to make that decision. Yeah, like you you are complicit. You are letting it happen when you know that it happens, and you either do not speak up on it or you do nothing to try and stop it. But yeah, well, this is what I also say on that though is. Any American who has any knowledge at all of what's going on right now, watches the news at all, has no excuse. And therefore, if you hear about all the shit that's happening and don't choose to educate yourself, don't choose to try to do anything about it. There's a, there's an NPR poll that just came out today in which it, over 60% of white Americans have done nothing, nothing. To educate themselves further on this shit, 
on, on why black lives matter and why white supremacy is more than just folks wearing a, a swastika. A lot of people just consider black lives matter to be the equivalent for some reason. And I think it's because of what you said earlier. Subconscious like yearning is that they literally see like groups of people saying black people matter and they're only thinking that no they don't we all matter the same what are y'all talking about this is bullshit and they're not seeing the words that they're saying that, that that's a good point um i saw this picture recently i think that represented what we're talking about so so perfectly mm-hmm. and it was like where centrists think that, what centrists think that they are and it had a person on the left of them and a person on the right of them. And then it was pointed to the person in the middle, centrist. But what centrists actually are, are these people on the bottom who are oppressed and vi- doing everything that they can to get out from under there versus these people on the top who are trying to keep every de- everybody down below them, right? And so what that actually does when you choose to be a centrist is it just makes those that are oppressing more oppressive because you are trying to equate that uh, that to the equal of those that are oppressed as being some fringe group. Understand this. Black Lives Matter, rioting, looting, uh, protesting at its most docile will stop the day that white supremacy is truly dealt with. But white supremacy won't stop if Black Lives Matter get out the street White supreme, uh, uh, neo-Nazis will not stop flying their Nazi flags and everything unless black people are, uh, black Jews, whatever, are under complete genocide because that is what they believe in. Yeah. Black Lives Matter, Antifa are all about dismantling these systems of oppression whereas they are advocating for further oppression. And that's what we have to realize. There is no neutral stance. There is only, am I going to be part and complicit of the oppression, or am I going to fight violently against the oppressor? That's usually because, like I stated earlier with people that, when it comes to, like, uh, what what was it specifically, where people were saying that people, I think this is the point we made before the podcast, that, uh, excuse me, that, uh, Americans that work 40 plus hours a week and still can't make ends meet that your typical conservative or usually people just typically like leaning towards the oppressive structure of our country will say that that's their fault. Mm -hmm. And even if there is to a degree that it's their fault, it's still like it's almost like, in my opinion, I think it's a brainwashing because it involves them. Because when a person says that, that. Oh, it's poor people's fault that they can't manage their money right. What all that says to me, like I said earlier, is that that person is saying that I manage my money right. I'm not going through what you're talking about. I haven't went through what you're talking about. So clearly it's because they don't manage their money right. No, let, let me tell you, people who say that really are just fortunate to not have experienced one yep. of those things yet. So, for example, I mean... I've seen family members who have said that very same thing. Well, if they wouldn't go and spend all the money on alcohol, if they wouldn't go out on the weekends and and uh, and participate in entertainment, whatever, you know, if they wouldn't go to putt putt golf with their family on Saturday <laughs> or something, then maybe they could afford uh, their rent at the end of the month that just went up a hundred dollars because of inflation or some yeah. bullshit by the landlords. Well, if they would do, th- but the thing is. You know the one thing that will change their mind on that? 
a, a financial bind because of a medical emergency. That is true. A financial bind because the car broke down. Any type of financial emergency, and automatically we have this solidarity with that person. They're just like, hey, can uh, can you guys help me out? There's crowdfunding. There is reaching out to a family member. There's asking grandma. Mm-hmm. Literally, okay, and this is an aside because we don't have time to get into all this. But you want to know how fucked up our healthcare system is? Understand that if somebody gets a truly life-threatening illness and they work a working-class occupation, yeah, they're done. They are dependent solely upon crowdfunding and the luck of the draw that they might just become famous in some way and get a bunch of people to to fund their surgery or yep. to fund their treatment. And uh, I don't know. It's just it's fucked up how poverty is automatically equated to not being fit to live. That's why, even more so on the point of how they say the poor keep themselves poor, I, I think I, 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 we were talking about it earlier, it's that just like when you look in communities that are considered poor or they're considered less wealthy and lower income, you see Dollar General, you see Family Dollar, you see corner stores i've like i've dubbed the the word for what i say corner store i've dubbed dubbed them trap stations mm-hmm. and the reason i say trap station is because they sell everything from like past your drug tests to literal like bongs and stuff for you to smoke out of they right. they're selling anything in that store they can to get your money they have little 25 cent candies little 50 cent candies you walk into the middle of memphis into let's say like union and you walk into a gas station on union you're not gonna see it. Mm-mm. You might you maybe if it's a privately owned gas station, you'll see a couple of them. But you walk into an Exxon or a Shell, you ain't seeing that. Mm-mm. You're not gonna see anything roughly less than a dollar. Mm-hmm. And it's because in those communities, they're literally getting you to spend more. No one thinks that. Oh, oh, I got fifty cents left in change. I'm gonna get this little fifty cent knickknack or fifty cent piece mm-hmm. of candy. All right, you do that every time you got fifty cents left. And what that does is it sets a president. Going further, you look in the communities and you see check cashing places, you see title loan places, you see payday loan places, you mm-hmm. see pawn shops. I, I've been in a lot, I've been in plenty of upper scale communities, I've been in plenty of upper scale neighborhoods, plenty of upper scale areas. Go to Germantown, Germantown, Tennessee, you don't see a single goddamn check cashing place. The, the check cashing places are inside of businesses, you don't see a single pawn shop. You don't see a single like jewelry selling place. If you do, it's it's a place it's a jeweler that offers selling services. Right. You you don't see places specifically built to take something from the community and give it out at a lower rate. You don't mm-hmm. see that. But you see that constantly in like Orange Mound, Memphis. You see that constantly in like go to like West Virginia where there's poor like coal mining white people. Right. It's the poor communities that always have these and people would think, Oh, it's because they're poor, so clearly they need cheaper stuff. Think about it like this. You buy a roll of toilet paper for a dollar. You buy ten rolls, that's ten dollars. The value pack of toilet paper is eight ninety five. You save a dollar five buying that value pack of toilet paper and it's ten rolls. You can't afford that on your budget. It's easier for you to just buy a roll of toilet paper when you need that roll of toilet paper. But guess what? As time goes on, guess what you need? You're always going to need that toilet paper. And that initial purchase you made that would have been bulk is even heavier now. People that are on fixed incomes, lower incomes, 
or as Josiah said, working class incomes, like it, it's literally like their income is always relative to how much they work. Right. Somebody that's putting in 60 hours of work, they get sick, they miss a day of work. That is a massive depletion of their pay. Mm-hmm. That's a massive part of their bills that they can't get to. And let's say for all the people that say, OK, they, they, they should be saving. Let's say that was the part of their savings. For somebody like me, like I, 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 I do the math on each purchase that I spend and how it might add up later on. And don't get me wrong, I still make impulsive, stupid ass purchases mm-hmm. because I believe that I'm human and I'm getting better at that. However, let's say it on the scale of somebody where it actually matters. All right, it comes down to it. Let's say your daughter has to get checked out of school because she had an asthma attack. You have to miss work that day. All right. Your daughter uses her inhaler. Oh, her inhaler's empty, and you missed work. So that's a day of work that, let's say you made 125 that day. You got a decent job. That's what you would have put back in your savings. That's what you would have put for a rainy day fund. You have to pay for your daughter's medicine now. What does that start? That starts a loop in that if you instantly don't recover from that double loss, you will literally be playing catch-up on your next paycheck. Because on your next paycheck, you go... I'm going to put 125 in the savings. But guess what you have to pay for again? Your daughter's medicine. Right. And on the next paycheck, you go, okay, uh, we didn't get as much work at work this week, so I'm a little shorter, so I'm just going to pay for my daughter's medicine. And you use what you would have used for your savings. Now you're mm-hmm. directly back at neutral. Exactly. And now you're teetering on that brink of moving further and going lower. And people don't understand how easy it is to be on that brink. And I really feel like the people that don't understand it have never had to consider it. Because I've grown up around poor people. At stages in my life, like we have been cons- like what you can consider poor. Never stupid. Mm-hmm. Like my mom, throughout all the times I've seen her budget a meal, like making it, has always, before she went into that store, knew what she was getting, right. how much it cost, and she had mm-hmm. already done the math on it. Exactly. And she still knew how to make food for a larger amount. She cooked at home. The thing my grandmother has always stressed to me, even since I was a young boy, was live beneath your means. Because if you live beneath your means, you will always have enough for what you want to do. What? Yeah, well, let, let's also talk about something else, though, is poor people are systematically denied the opportunity of financial institutions and actual credit. Yep. Right. Which always keeps them out of the ability to go beyond their means. Right. Because then it turns into rent to own. And that's just that's just exactly what I just explained. It's just a massive you're paying more than it's actually worth. Right. And and what what ends up happening. So let's also dispel this myth that people in uh, even in the middle. Well air quote middle class as if something exists like that it's gutted <laughs> but but just uh just people who have enough in these suburban communities and everything and live a a somewhat comfortable life yeah if we're completely honest most of them are living well beyond their means they they're got a living, nice car a they're nice living house, on pool. credit they're living yep. on they don't really own all the things that they think they own or we think that they own that's either. actually that's actually a really good point and, and and here's the here's the thing white people in suburbia I'm not talking about rich people I'm not talking about people in the one or ten percent of America which owns a disproportionate amount of wealth yeah I'm talking about people who economically are very close to you and I and everybody else in the working class. 
That's the reason why I say the middle class doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, if we're completely honest, they own just as much as you and I do in the working class. The only difference is they have the ability to live off of credit. Yeah. They have the access to credit. Yep. And they have the ability to work on a good credit score. Whereas many people in working class families don't have that opportunity. They don't have a family member that can co-sign because they never had good credit. Exactly. They never develop good credit. Yep. They fall If they fall into debt, they're never going to be able to work the way out of it on a minimum or even slightly above minimum wage job. Nope. They'll always be making ends meet. Exactly. And it's not... Like, the the thing I, I like to see when people are talking about that, when they're just like, like you said earlier, it's like, oh, they go out, they go to putt-putt golf for the weekend, they do blank, blank, blank. And it's that, it, it's kind of the same situation when, it's, when it comes to, like, when people, like, make fun of people that are, like, overly obese. Do you not think the person that is actually overly obese doesn't in their mind know that? Yeah. Like, no. so... Yeah. The, the, okay, the, the bigger point I'm trying to make to that when it comes to poverty is that, one, when it comes to the... Con- I'm going to say it's a conservative line of logic because I've only heard it from conservatives. When it comes to the conservative line of logic that poor people are poor because they don't use their funds right, I will say that you are not accounting and you are not even thinking of the vast majority that does not. They Okay, the statistic is that 70% of the people in this country live paycheck to paycheck. And that's seventy percent of the people that are, that are workers. Now let's cut let's cut that in half. That's thirty five percent. So let's say half of that are people that actually have families that are hard workers that do everything they can. You still okay with thirty five percent of the country working their asses off and not being able to make ends meet despite their good decisions? Mm-hmm. Okay, cut that thirty five percent in half. You got like I think it's like fourteen point five, like fourteen ish point somewhere along those lines. <laughs> All right, that's still 10% of the country. That's still a couple million people. You're mm-hmm. still okay with that. Right. Cut it in half again. You're, st- you're still okay with a couple hundred thousand to a million people? How far does that line of logic go to them basically saying that they just don't care? Exactly. Like, it's not a problem for you, so you don't care about it. You make enough. You have your... All, all the answers you need given to you are given. You... So, the, this is the best way I can put it, and it's, it's a... It's, it, it goes into, like, how people are also raised. And it's like, if you're raised in a poor family or a family that's struggling to make ends meet despite how loving that they are, because you can, like, there are people, obviously, bro, you, it doesn't matter the type of family you come from. There's love and there's not love. There's good homes and there's bad homes. Right. You can come from a good home and y'all are poor. There's one thing you're going to learn. And guess what that is? Survival. Mm-hmm. You're learning survival no matter what. You're going to learn that some days you have to leave the stove open because the heat's turned off. You're going to learn that some days you might have to reuse certain products because you're not getting any new of those. You're going to learn that some days you might not get the present that you're supposed to get on this day because it has to come at a later date. You learn survival. For people not in those situations, and I know plenty of people that are like that, it's almost like it's it's almost like a sense of not only entitlement, it's like a sense of expectation. It's their sense of normalcy. They're, you're supposed to get gifts for your birthday. Why wouldn't your parent take you to get your license at 16? Yeah. What do you mean you didn't get your license until you were like 20, 25? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. It's because in your lifestyle that you consider normal, that is built upon, like you said, usually by borrowed time, which is what I call credit. It's mm-hmm. borrowed time if you can't pay it back. Right. 
that's literally what it's built on. And a lot of kids growing up don't even realize they're really about their parents. And that's where you, like, one thing I've always heard, and you can see that in, uh, I think it was Trump's daughters-in-law speech at the RNC convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laura Trump, I think that's her name. I don't even know. It, it, it was terrible. So many of them. I, so I, many of them speaking. I'll say this, and I've said it plenty of times to a lot of different friends and maybe on the show before, I don't remember. There's a serious problem when you look at a council or a convention or a meeting or a public speaking in America and six of those 12 speakers have the same last name. Mm-hmm. But back to the point that I was on about poor people and I guess the machinations of how poverty works is that people don't understand, like Josiah said, that they are one single day away. They're one bad week. They're one bad month. They're one f- just fucked month of finances away from being in the gutter and guess what if you can sit here while listening to me say this go oh I, I could have my car go down and I could do this you're one of two things maybe you're a diligent worker who saved up money and can prepare for that situation I hope you can prepare for the next one that hits you because sometimes they hit in doubles or you're a person that knows you have a support network knows you have structure and knows you have people to rely on despite your pride or despite your own sense of worth that makes you not rely on those people and shout out to you! Shout out to you that you can do that. Right. And good for you for having the self worth and pride that you don't take the easy way out and you choose to work hard. But in the sense of people that never had that option and only had survival, it is a constant issue. It is a constant lifestyle. It is it, it's life. That's. I think you bring up a good point there. And uh, for me, the biggest equalizer, uh, at least in my life, was was. Uh, coronavirus. I was working in the service industry um, pretty much to make ends meet while I was putting myself through college, mm-hmm. you know, and um, classic American story. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so so I'm serving sushi every night and I'm, I'm saving up as much money as I can in case something happens. Well, next next freaking thing I know we hit with this coronavirus. I don't I don't have a job yep. anymore. And then to further exacerbate things, I couldn't get unemployment for just... It's a very precarious reason, which I don't want to get into. Okay. Um, so I'm not even qualified for unemployment, and I'm in a very, very tight situation. Uh, but luckily, I had saved up uh, about $3,000, which to me was a lot. Yeah. That's about 10 months worth of rent because I split it three different ways. Due but diligence. It, right. And so I was like, you know what? I was smart. I did what I had to do. I'm going to be good. For five months, I sat there and watched all that savings just dwindle until eventually it got to this point where it's like, yo, I've got to do something. But the the restaurant still wasn't open up again. You know, I still hadn't started my uh, job at college and everything. And nobody wanted to hire me because I was fixing to start another job in August for the university. Yep. And so what the hell was I supposed to do? But here, going back to what you said, luckily... My dad had also lost his job during coronavirus, and he had started to do construction, and he Ah. owned his means of production. And so I was able to offer my labor to put me through that, but I also have to be honest with myself in saying this. Suppose my dad didn't have that. I might be able to walk to a construction site or something and say, look, I really need a job. I don't care what you pay me. I just need money to pay the bills. And there's a very small chance they would hire me. Yeah. But I also have to understand this, too. I've been on job sites 
where people have come to, came up to us and said, hey, can I have a job? And we always treated them the same way, with suspicion. And that is the problem that we're dealing with in America. We talk all tough and everything about like, well, you should just find a job. Yep. Or you should just go out and, and figure out a way. But when you go and do that, you're met with instant and obvious suspicion from you, everybody. You know what and, I call that? One thing I've learned from any workplace, no matter construction, office, driving, delivery, like taxis, it doesn't matter, bro. No matter what workplace, there's always nepotism. Absolutely. Oh, there, yeah. There's always, they like the people that they know, and they get in where they fit in. And anyone exactly. that comes outside of that is foreign, and they hold them at arm's length until they know that they can trust them. That, no, that's exactly right. I mean, that's what, dri- that's what drives the hiring process right. in America. Okay, this is the best way to put it. I, I, recently, I went about a job for like a month or two, and I was putting in applications like crazy everywhere. Mm-hmm. I was calling them back. I showed up to interviews. I say, like, personally, I think I'm a pretty good speaking person unless they saw my dreads and was just like, hoodlum. But <laughs> either way, I think I present myself fairly well when I go to interviews. I dress nicely. I wear, like, button-up. Like, I can't find my tie, so I won't say suit and tie. Yeah. But I will say button-up, slacks, etc., stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I never get a call back. Now, guess what happens when I talk to one of my friends and I'm like, yo, bro, where you work? He's like, yo, I do so-and-so, so-and-so, so-and-so. And I'm just like, y'all hiring? And he's just like, yeah, I'll let my manager know you put in an application. I put that application in and heard back from that manager that day. Mm-hmm. And for people to think that doesn't happen at nearly every workplace, you're ignorant. Yeah, yeah. You, 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 what it really shows is you never had to go and do that. Willfully ignorant. And, and then another thing, getting a job right out of college is just about a, as much a myth in that in that instance you, as well. Because in that situation, you're either taking what you can get, or you're you're, you're waiting. You're and waiting for the. You either had something lined up, like from what I've heard from people's experience, like right after they graduate, they had something lined up. Or they're taking what they can get. It's one of the two. Or they're in that limbo where they're just like, ha ha, eight years of college and nothing. Really, the only way that we're ever going to address these things, or, or the only way we're going to really get mass solidarity, in my opinion, is for uh, for these networks to break down, right? When when you run out of friends who have bosses who are looking to hire. Yep. When, you, when you run out of family members who have a little bit of extra change. Because what it really comes down to is, we we just we were those networks are already disintegrating and breaking down and we're so scared of it and that's the reason why we're seeing these risings of fascism and nationalism all over America because we haven't dealt with two things firstly our consumerist culture yeah that has commodified our labor and humanity in general and secondly whiteness and white supremacy that is also complicit within that consumerist culture uh i want to say like obviously we're like an hour and 10 right now so we're getting close to where we want to cut it off but i will say on the point you made about consumerism is i've always even even at a young age because my mom owned a business when i was a kid like i told you my family is farmers we've always like i was always taught that i've always been taught like units of measurement units of sales Units of land worth, taxes, land property. I've been taught that since I was a kid, or I've been told it since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So, 
when I grew, as I grew up, the thing I always noticed is like, I find this fun game. Like even during the early 2000s, I'm enjoying the game. I'm like, wow, this is really well made. I got to tell everybody about this. And then there's just like this certain area. And I'm just like, why did everything suddenly just like increase? It's like they turned the level difficulty up for no reason. And then you get to this wall and it's just like, for 300 gold, you can buy this fucking sword. Right. And you know that sword can kill all your enemies. And you're just standing there like, okay, so I either have to go back out into the walls and basically put like 40 more hours of gameplay in to beat this area. Or mm-hmm. I can make this microtransaction and spend like $10 in real life. I'm a kid. So mm-hmm. I'm like, bro, $10 online during the early 2000s? I'm like, I don't even know how to begin to pay this. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm lost. <laughs> so, like, for, from an early age, one thing I always noticed and developed, bro, was that when people are asking for money, it's that it comes in this sense of, like, any time you spend outside of making money, doing something to get money, trying to get money, they consider it a waste. Mm-hmm. I've had friends... It, like, I almost feel like it's a form of depression because I've been there before. And it's that I know that they're gamers. I know they're not gamers in the sense that they toss their lives away at games. They don't sit on the in front of a screen all day and play games. Their hobby is they like to play games. They like to delve into the world. They like to be a fan of the series. And I have those exact same friends who say, like, nowadays they don't, they, they don't know what it is. It's that they sit down to play their game that they've enjoyed for years and it's not that they don't know the game is going to be fun. It's that they can't get over the fact that they they feel like they're wasting time. Mm-hmm. That to them, the thing that they used to put time in that brought them so much joy, now that they're an adult, they only feel like I'm wasting time. I could be making money. I could be doing something to like make oh more skills God. to make money. I could be doing something to better myself. You don't have to like like Josiah said. It's like. What, I think it was the, the was it the commodifying yeah commodification the, the commodification of labor and it's made labor almost seem like it's not okay this is the best way I can put it the way I consider it if you want if you have goals in life if you want resources if you want to survive and you don't have ways for that to be provided to you what do you do you have to go out and get it you have to develop skills to get it. You have to develop ways to get it. You have to go out and earn the marriage yourself. That's one thing I'll say I probably share with like a right-wing person is that I do believe in the basic concept of it should come from the individual to do something. Don't don't be confused about the difference between work ethic and entrepreneurship. On the right, they're pushing for entrepreneurship, which is a, a modicum of work ethic that is tied to a profit motive. I, but yeah, work ethic is very much a part of the left. Yes. Don't don't be confused there. The way I okay, better better on that. Like the way I can think of like when you say a work ethic is more part of the left is that literally okay, when people hear the word socialism and then okay, this is no way me saying that I am necessarily for socialism. My my direct belief, and I'm going to tell you this now when it comes to socialism and socialist policies, is that while they have been implemented in other countries and they may not have worked out, that just like every form of government, just like every single form of policy in every nation, they differ depending on the people you implement them on and the people implementing them. Mm-hmm. So until some type of test is done in America, we can't say that socialism won't work because in my opinion, we already have socialism. It's just socialism for the rich. Yeah, because no, that's exactly like, okay, you, like you said, coronavirus happened. Josiah was lucky. He made smart decisions. He saved money. Yeah, 
so did these corporations. They still got bailouts. Right. They still got money. But right. leading back to the point of what he said on entrepreneurship and how it's kind of like the profit motive is tied to what you're doing. Socialism's literal definition is the it's the it's basically the group benefit. It's everyone working together. Now I know what people are thinking when they think this. They think, oh, I'm gonna work harder than this guy, and he's gonna get credit for my work. You, the, the, I'll personally even say that's an American, more American leaning style of thought. In that, when you go over to Eastern countries like Asia or Korea or Japan, they have this strict thing in their cultures, and it is the group whole. It is that everyone works for the group collective. And don't get me wrong, that has its limitations and that has also caused drawbacks in their systems. It definitely has. But different systems, different problems. Mm -hmm. But in America, we have this problem where we think that not only is the individual that matters, it's the individual perception. So that's where you get the you and yours, the nepotism, the people you care about, the people you know, the people you enforce with, the people you, in general, anybody that wants to talk more urban, the people you fuck with. Mm -hmm. But... As it goes on, what for the longest, what were humans? If you lived in a village, if you lived in a small community, even if you live in a town right now, I don't care who you are listening to this, I guarantee you, off the top of your head, you probably know at max like 40 to 50 people that you interact with monthly to yearly basis. You have family member you might see every now and then, cousin you might see every now and then, friend you contact every now and then. However you want to think about it, those people that you always reach out to, that you contact, that are your friends and relatives in your inner circle, that's your village. That's what humans are built to do. Right. Those are the people that you, without a doubt, will work together with. You would go, oh, I know my friend Chad. I know Chad's a little sick today and he didn't put in as much work, so I'm going to give Chad a little bit of mine so we both have it. You won't have a problem doing that for your friend, but for this guy that you don't know, you don't know the reason this guy's sick. You're going to assume this guy's lazy. Don't right. get me wrong, there are lazy people that might take advantage of that. But that's when the group as a whole has to come down to the decision to talk about that person. That's what that's for. That's the whole point of a village. If you've ever heard the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, that's where it comes from. Right. It takes overall influence. When you look at fucking hunter-gatherer communities, do you know what you don't see? You don't see crime. <laughs> you, you you don't see like fucking M'Baku breaking into fucking somebody else's house. You want to know why? He has no reason to because right. him and that person the next day are going to wake up, go forage, go gather, go build another building for their entire village and defend that bitch. Yeah. They work together every day make sure they're all straight. Mm -hmm. There's even cases of less rape in hunter or not even hunter gather because some of them have moved past that and interact with us. They just still maintain their way of life. Like they know we're out there. They know we're more advanced, but they still choose to be like what... Western civilization would be would consider primitive, right? Savages, savages. But in their own respects, they literally they they do what they are not only raised to do. They do what works for them. Right. They, there's no rape. There's no crime. They the, the time that they have issues is when there's outside interference from some other entity entity. And what people don't get is that even on the basic level, in my belief, that I'll say I think that's how humans work. You're always going to look at the people around you, the people near you, and you're going to think to yourself that these are my people. I have their best interest in mind, and I have my best interest in mind. But I, what people don't realize for America is that 
America, while being super diverse, I think is the reason we have all these like sectionalized views and it allows people to drift off down different pipelines like the white supremacy pipeline or even the like hating Jews pipeline, which is also a part of the white supremacy mm-hmm. pipeline. But our multiculturalism is kind of like a double-edged sword in that aspect, but it's to a bigger extent. Okay, we're America. Like Josiah said, we like to talk all big and bad about go out and get a job, go out and do this, but we don't consider that people are still clicky, people are still going to be in their tight-knit groups, people are still going to be together. So what does that bring us to? If we're all supposed to be a team, what do we do with the losers? Currently in America, I'd say they see that people are losers, and those people are losers because you never gave them time on the field. And so now you want to cut them from the team. Yeah. But yeah, if you taught them to be as good as everybody else on the team or allowed them to get the field time and stop hindering them or just step back and let them show what they can do in any remote way, maybe they would be that star player. Maybe everyone on the team would be an all-star and now we're all in together. And don't get me wrong, even if we all united in America, I'm pretty sure then we'd probably hit that like 1940s vibe and just be like, we're an entire country built for war. Yeah. So who knows where it could go if we all united, but we'd all be united. And that's literally what humans do, guys. That's the whole point of this that, that entire rant I just went on. That's what humans do. We band together because we take safety in numbers. And in America, that's what constantly happens with what we're doing because we're so sectionalized. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great point. I, th- I think you made some really good points right there. That's Oh, there's a lot to unpack, yeah. for sure. But uh, where are we at? We are at a minute and 20. This has actually been one of the longest ones in a minute, guys. Uh, Josiah, you got any leading, I mean, like, ending thoughts you want to leave them with? Just some closing thoughts. Um, you know, at the end of the day, what it's going to come down to is we've got to fight the real enemy, which is uh, these people who push the agendas of white supremacy. And don't be confused. It's not some working-class white dude who's caught up in the throes of a racist ideology, but people who impress upon us this concept of white supremacy are Democrat and Republican alike. They are also uh, male and female alike. And I would even go so far as to say that they also can be people of color as well. What it really comes down to is a true class struggle of people who are not white enough, not rich enough, and ultimately not moralized enough, yeah. in a sense. Um, if I could say any last thing, it would be uh, just read some theory. <laughs> read Marx, read Engels, read Angela Davis. Um, there's this other guy named, give me just a second, Ibram, uh, 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 I'm sorry, Ibram Kendi. Okay, read that, that man. Uh, he talks about being an anti-racist and and uh, e- even if you just watch a YouTube video, you know, just just educate yourself. That's what it really comes down to: is just try to understand something outside of just what you comfortably accept. All right. And uh, anyways, follow me on Instagram, whatever. Joss D Hoss J O S dot D dot H O S S. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. Alright, and we're going to be wrapping up the show. I'll say the last thoughts that I'm going to leave you guys on is, like Josiah said, we have to educate ourselves. You've heard me say this on the show before. You've heard me say this in regards to what us people that consider ourselves progressives are going to have to do in the coming future. You've heard me say this about 
humans, you've heard me say this about Americans, about black people in general, the moral of the story is going to always come down to you need to educate yourself. You need to make sure you have the tools to fight against the things that are challenging you in life. And like Josiah said, it comes down to the people that are enforcing these things and that it is not, it, it comes down to a general contest of what they implement as standards of whiteness, what they implement as standards of poverty and wealth. And the real thing I want to leave you guys off on, I guess, the note of the standards that is set in place is that it's not even always directly a person from what we can consider the bourgeoisie or the upper class or the elite 10%, 1%, whatever you want to call it. Sometimes it's their thought. Sometimes it's their lines of the lines of thought. And some of these lines of thought are so old that they have been plaguing humanity for generations. Like we've talked about through this podcast. The subconscious denial that people might have. I even brought up the subconscious denial that people might have even in the aspect of being black in a sense of blaming slavery or racism for everything, even though it is definitely in part due to a large amount of things. It still all comes down to how you decipher the information. It comes down to how you educate yourself because you too will come down to the answers that maybe we came down to. Or if you come down to your own answers, I hope that journey is going to work out for you. And that's all we really have for you today on the Psych Warrior Podcast, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode. Oh, war.